one. All right, guys, welcome back to the student cast. I'm here with Rob. Would you prefer Robber? How would you prefer? I'm all right with Rob. Rob works yeah? for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rob, why don't why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you? And what do you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Rob. Uh, Rob McKinnon, whatever you want to call me. Um, and I do. I'm a second year industrial design student at Loughborough University. Um, very much kind of a young entrepreneur, uh, upcoming public speaker. Love anything that's kind of creative and uh, impactful, and focusing upon social entrepreneurship. And uh, and yeah, and uh, yeah, they're kind of the things that I like to focus on. Mm. You talk about entrepreneurship. Uh, so so what what particularly about it, like you you interested in? Um, so kind of with my entrepreneurial journey as such, I'm very much I would say towards the beginning. Um, but I'll start love... somewhere. Yeah, yeah, fully. Yeah, you've got to start somewhere and. Slowly but surely, I, I'm hopefully going to start building uh, different businesses up and stuff like that and see where I can go with it. But yeah, the area that I'm mainly focusing uh, and really enjoying at the moment is kind of social entrepreneurship. Um, and that's what I found through Enactus, um, which is a university society that I, I'm actually the president um, of Enactus Loughborough. Uh, so Loughborough University's Enactus team. And I've absolutely loved it because it's a kind of area of entrepreneurship that when I was younger, I didn't even realize existed. Um, and so it's been really interesting to delve into a world of where you can make money with your passion, which I think is always a very key thing, but also I can impact people's lives and change people's lives through the type of entrepreneurship that I'm wanting to do and the products that you sell or the projects that you run. Um, and I think that that's massive and definitely social entrepreneurship. I want that to be a big thing within my future, but also within um, a lot of people's futures, I, I would hope. Hmm. Like, so what, what are you uh, working on now or planning to work on in terms of businesses you want to start? Because I think everyone has a has these ideas of a business they, they, they could or want to start. But it's like it's, starting is the hardest part. The rest of it comes with time. Yeah, fully. Um, yeah, the, kind of with stuff that I'm doing at the moment. So within Enactus, uh, I run a project called PrepMate, and that is focused upon creating a chopping board that I'm designing at the moment with a mini design team to help those with upper limb differences and dexterity-related impairments uh, to help them to have more confidence in the kitchen and be able to uh, help them in preparing food within the kitchen. Um, and kind of like the goal with that project is to go from the beginnings of that we are selling a chopping board, which is very much kind of your initial impact of that it's, um, it can change that person's life of that they now have the confidence to cook in the kitchen and be able to do what they want uh, with preparing food to then that, 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 that project can develop and grow to the point of where we reach our ultimate goal, which is that we want to help in reducing inequality within uh, the workplace. And so getting more people um, from disabled communities to work within the catering industry, because that's quite a problem at the moment that um, as one of the sectors uh, that there aren't that many disabled people working within the catering industry. And that is predominantly down to um, the kind of the workspace, the tools that they use, and that a lot of it is not appropriate for them. And so the prep mate chopping board in a way is kind of the stepping stone towards that. Um, and yeah, this year is kind of very much our year, I would say. So we're hoping to 
have final products sorted by the end of January, February time. And, uh, and we're going to launch a Kickstarter uh, in March and try and gain funding that way and see where it goes. But hopefully PrepMate is going to go big. I mean, um, so so what does the what is the the chopping board because i i'm looking at uh, thinking in my head right i'm looking at a chopping board and thinking yeah. okay so you're you're looking at physical disabilities like how, how how are you solving the issue like what what is the difference between that chopping board and a normal one per se how would you explain that yeah so probably easiest way to explain it is if you were to imagine using a chopping board using only one arm um then that means that because you're only using one arm, you're losing a lot of that ability to be able to hold food still, to be able to um, kind of use your wrist power and your finger power to hold stuff in place. And so this board is very much concentrating upon holding stuff securely um, and allowing the user to be able to do the processes that um, they will struggle to do when you only have one, uh, one arm. And one arm, I would say, is kind of more to the extremes of it. Um, because there are some people with upper limb differences who still have the rest of their arm and it may just be that they don't have all of their fingers um, developed because of a birth defect, for example. Um, and so it can be that I find it the easiest way to think about the extreme because then once you think about the extreme, it answers a lot of the other problems that are for people who don't have that extreme. Um, and the way we're wanting to do this is make sure that it's a way that is both functional but also really beautiful uh, in terms of desirability because talking to a lot of uh, what we call like our beneficiaries who are the people who would buy the board and benefit from the board um, they say that it's very much that a lot of the disability aids that are out there are ugly they're kind of white and medical looking and don't look that nice um, and also they're just not very safe in some cases um, because literally if anyone types in one-handed chopping board into Google, one of the first things that comes up will be chopping boards that have a huge big clamp on them and spikes. And when I mean spikes, I mean like nails stuck up out of the board. And yeah, as a designer, it's kind of scary seeing that and seeing that that is the main product that is out there at the moment. And so, yeah, it's just us trying to take the stuff that works and adapt it so that it is beautiful and desirable. Um, and we're also trying to do it in quite a trendy way as well. So usually people think about chopping board brands. One of the first ones to come to mind is Joseph Joseph because they have really nice feeling boards and um, because of the textures that they have on them and also they're brightly colored, their branding is really bright and it really stands out on the chopping board market. And so we're trying to kind of follow that trend as well, that we want to stand out, but we also want people to want to have this board um, in their kitchen instead of it being too much of, oh, this is a disability aid. It's more of that this is the chopping board for you, less mm -hmm. than a disability aid, if that makes sense. So, so how, how would it work? That, that's kind of what I'm trying to, trying to figure out. So you, you describe what, what's out there already is something with nails. And in my first, like, thought is okay that's in essence how i think what just get a screw drill it through the board you could stick an apple on there and it stays still like obviously understanding somewhat product design being an engineer i'm not fully into it but i understand that that's obviously a bit stupid having a nail sticking out of a board just normally so i mean what what does your board look like and how does it yeah, work uh, is, 
Yeah, because because yeah, in all honesty, in terms of functionality, that works pretty well. Um, it's just it's not very safe and not very practical. Um, but yeah, our solution, which is kind of it's still being developed at the moment, but we're getting towards the end stage, is that it's very much that we've realised that um, with the board, it needs to have space where it is like a normal kind of board of just flat to allow you to do different processes. But for the processes that require um, greater dexterity or uh, greater strength, um, such as uh, it can be for like for harder foods, like say if you had a melon, for instance, you need something that's going to be able to hold it decently and a clamp can't do that. So we're at the moment, we're kind of designing in the center of the board uh, this array of spikes, essentially. But these spikes are based upon uh, ones that are used more for cut a kind of carving chopping boards so they're a lot smaller and they also kind of they look as though they integrate a lot better into the whole like chopping board and the kind of flow of the design um, and so they're still kind of functional in that they are sharp enough that you can put your piece of food on there and it'll stay still but they kind of fit better into the board instead of being some great huge spikes sticking up out of the board and yeah I've been toggling with it because we have a 3d printer um uh, for the project and so i've been doing lots of different prototypes and testing it and yeah it's very much trying to find that balance of that it's spiky enough that it'll hold it but also that um it's not so spiky that if you accidentally put your hand on it or something like that that it's going to impale you or something crazy like that um so yeah it's very much a balance um and then like other features that we have on the board um we're we're mucking around with something at the moment that um, is something that would be quite new, um, I would say, in terms of what's on out there on the boards at the moment as a kind of knife guiding system, um, because something that someone, for instance, with one arm would really struggle with is dicing or chopping an onion, for example. And so with the combination of the spikes and this kind of knife guiding system that we're wanting to use, which essentially is trying to hold the end of the blade so that you can have a bit more control uh, for dicing and cutting, um, yeah, it'll just be able to help the user do those kind of processes. Um, and we're also experimenting with some walls that we're having towards the bottom, because if you think about something that's more soft, for instance, like a slice of bread, and you're wanting to butter it, or you want to put some jam on it or something like that, then it's very much kind of a stroke action. And because of the type of food, it's not something that you would put on spikes. So we're experimenting with these kind of walls at the bottom, uh, to allow you that if you go with the direction of where the walls are, that you're stroking into them, which keeps the uh, slice of bread in place. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of like a sum up at the moment of what features we're playing with and hmm. seeing what works best. So what have you what have you done to 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 test it so far? Because I'm guessing you're going to have to try a, a bunch of stuff from something really small, say a grape or or berry, to something hmm. big like you said, like a watermelon, for instance. I mean. So what, what's testing like for this? Because I feel like it would be pretty interesting. Yeah, so <laughs> the testing ranges massively. So it literally goes from me making a uh, design on CAD and then getting that to the 3D printer, the 3D printer printing it out um, in food safe PLA, and then me literally taking it to the kitchen and trying all these different foods. Um, and yeah, as you kind of say, going from a grape all the way to a melon, um, I will literally try anything uh, and see what happens. And that's kind of a bit more from my own perspective. So I can work out as the designer, okay, this looks good on CAD and it looks like it works, but does it actually work within the simplest context, which is me using it? 
Um, and then from there, we, we've been doing user testing ever since about, I think it was this, uh, when was it? September, October, no, sorry, more likely November, October of where we've been sending out um, boards in the post. Cause of course with COVID and everything, we've had to adapt. So the way that we'd normally do it is, is you get a focus group in and you get them all to try the board at the same time within the same room and you talk to them and kind of interview them and see what happens. But instead we've adapted and we are now sending out boards in the post with kind of like consent form, participant information form and a questionnaire and getting their feedback uh, who will be our customers and the people who want this board and seeing what they think and what they are saying so that I can then reflect back on the um, design process uh, and I can work out, of course, what is best because at the end of the day, uh, something that I, I, I bet you understand, especially within engineering, it will always be that the end user will be the most important person with a project like this because if it works for me, that's great, but I'm not the customer. And so they're always going to be the people that I need to listen to and are the most important within the whole design process. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, what's the what's the business model like? Because my, my thinking is how how big is the market for something that's, uh, that's very niche to, to put it? it's not it's not the general demographic, like, you could probably make a lot more money in a it, and be a lot more financially viable if you're just just making regular chopping boards or is the goal to be uh, to do both to make uh, regular chopping boards for for the everyday consumer and then have that the the option to to sp go out and be the go-to for let's say for disability or uh, specialist equipment yeah i i would say with the way that we're going with it is that um so, so yeah, I would agree with you that they are niches, um, but in some cases, they're not as niche as maybe what people realize. So statistics-wise, um, for the upper limb difference market, uh, there isn't that many statistics about it, but it would be estimated from statistics that I've looked within the US and stuff like that, that there's hundreds of thousands of people with an upper limb difference in the UK. But when it comes to the dexterity impairment market, um, out of the... Uh, I think it's now something crazy like 11 or 13 million people who are disabled in the UK, uh, 3.5 million of them um, have a problem with dexterity. And that can be arthritis, Parkinson's disease, uh, something related to dementia or the fact that you've been through a stroke. All of those um, kind of things come under that dexterity impairment in that specific market. And so yeah i think our ultimate goal with prepmate is very much along those lines of that we want to be the go-to for those people and to be the go-to chopping board and so we're not wanting to go too wide because we want our impact yeah it's because because it's one of those uh, kind of projects especially with an actor's projects as we find that it's a project that focuses more upon how we're going to change that person's life or how we're going to give them that opportunity instead of the money side of it of course the money side of it is important but because it's ran by students and we're all volunteering we're quite lucky in a sense of that we don't need to get an income out of this but we still understand of course that the money will then be able to go back into the project and be able to develop more products potentially and we've even started discussing about on a larger scale if we uh, create a partnership with a charity for instance or a manufacturer how we can make this go really big 
and how we can start to um, even spread our impact to helping those who have upper limb differences, for example, in third world countries. Um, and yeah, there's so many different avenues that we could go down, um, but it's very much at the moment our focus is, is to get the board sorted, to get it out there and to start impacting people's lives within the UK predominantly. Hmm. Like being in a, an engineer, obviously on the, I, I know how a development of a, of a product especially uh, works. And for me, it's the, building the product is the, is the easy bit. Building the the machine that makes the product is a bit more tricky because when when you're making one of something, it's very easy in comparison to making thousands or hundreds of thousands potentially. So how how are you looking at um, actually manufacturing this? Because running a single three D printer would be a little bit expensive, I'm guessing. So you'd have to you'd have to work that out as well. So how how is that going for you? Yeah, so <laughs> manufacturing, we've literally been here, there and everywhere trying to look for uh, the best way to do this. Um, and yeah, with 3D printing, yeah, our margins would be very tight, um, even with 3D printing from home and having lots of kind of 3D printers, like a 3D printer farm uh, or something like that. Um, yeah, our margins would be very tight and profit would probably only be a couple of quid. Um, and then in terms of other processes we've looked at, uh, we started exploring epoxy resin casting, which um, it works and in terms of money isn't that bad. And it does mean that we can produce the boards a little bit quicker. So instead of maybe if we were 3D printing that you have three by the end of the week with epoxy resin casting, you can maybe have 10 by the end of the week. But um, the amount of manual labor for that and the amount of um, money for everything as you're going along, yeah, it, it just doesn't work out that great. So from all the research that we've done, the kind of area that we are focusing upon is, um, need to get this right, but it's kind of like low production injection molding. Cause of course, injection molding, usually as soon as you say that people think, right, that means you're producing tens of thousands to even like millions of units. Um, but there are some companies out there luckily that are up for doing kind of smaller batch um, injection molding. And usually it just means that the, the mold that is made out of is usually made out of aluminium, for instance, instead of steel, and that it's smaller. Um, and that, of course, a lot of things are cut back. Uh, so to allow you for you to be able to do that process. But if we can get on with injection molding, then it means that we can make this in big quantities, like hundreds of boards, um, which will then allow us to uh, get somewhere. And we're also kind of encompassing that with the Kickstarter or, or the crowdfunding, because something that we've uh, investigated and found out about with Kickstarter, for instance, that's brilliant, is the fact that by the number of backers there are, it's kind of hinting towards how many people um, are interested in this. And then there is also a specific bit of where people can pre-order the board. And in doing that, it means that we're kind of guaranteeing, right, we have this many people who are gonna want this board. And, and so, yeah, we, it's odd because injection molding is probably one of the more expensive manufacturing techniques, but for this and for the amount of people that we're trying to help, it is the most appropriate. Um, and yeah, honestly, as someone that's like a designer who loves to do hands-on things, I'd love to do all the 3D printing, but to try and do 3D printing with all the other things that I do and my course, it would be a bit ridiculous. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm always up for it if it reaches that point. <laughs> I mean, it, it's 
it's always easier said than done and you, you you said that like um everyone's a volunteer so no one's looking at a salary and i think uh, a large part of that is because it is everyone's side hustle per se because you're a student everyone kind of understands that you're a student first and then this is like my side project but if this was to take off then you'd kind of have to eventually look at more of a business model and stop paying people because research and development in basically any field is probably the most costly that's that's where a lot of waste comes in you're trying a lot of stuff you're you're wasting a lot you're not actually producing much so i mean what what is the like long-term plan for it um for for this company because you you're obviously wanting it to take off you're never not wanting this company to not succeed yeah yeah so because it's an anactus project um, and actors projects work really weirdly and in some ways it's a pro and it's a con um, in that usually what happens because um, with an actors it's very much you're getting students involved and especially with Loughborough um, the majority of courses have a placement year uh, in the third year so it's very much you get first years in and they become a part of the project like a member of the project and then for second year they'll either go up a little bit or they'll go all the way to being project leader um, or on the committee, for instance. And, and so it does mean that, for instance, me as the project leader of the, of the project at the moment, I kind of have a, uh, a ticking time bomb, if you will, of the, of by the time that it reaches April, that's where I need to be handing over to somebody else for them to then continue it for the next year. And so in terms of long-term strategy of where I see it, but of course, with the next project leader, they're very much allowed to go and do what they want with it. The way I see PrepMate going is very much that from the crowdfunding, we get the funding that we're able to do and we start pushing it forward in terms of launching the board. And then as we go along, once we hit a stage of where we are unable to um, keep up with kind of the manufacturing uh, side of it or even kind of up with the cost side of it, that is where we're hoping that from our success, we'll be able to get someone else involved. Um, and it's very much that we're not kind of waiting to that point. We're doing talks right now, trying to get people involved um, where possible. But something that I have learned that is quite key um, is that they very much, they wanna see that this is gonna be successful and they want something that's a bit more than uh, just a CAD model per se, which I didn't understand that at the beginning. I was very much kind of, look, this is a really cool design board. Um, this is the size of the market. This looks like a really good idea. Backers, and they're kind of like, no, we need to see the actual board out there and we need to see that people are buying it and then we're much more likely to get involved. Um, and so, yeah, our exit strategy, if you will, is very much that we reach a point of where the project becomes so big that it moves on from an actus level and becomes uh, fully its own uh, project within another company and we get kind of a, um, I believe it's called like a royalty fee from that, which we can then use to uh, help either PrepMate continuing within Anactus, Loughborough, or using that money to help other projects within Anactus, which um, if we are able to do that, I think would be absolutely brilliant. And as part of kind of my own personal goals for Anactus, one of the things that myself and G, um, who is on committee with me even spoke about that we want to leave a dent at Anactus Loughborough or within the Anactus committee, uh, not committee, the community. Um, and I think something like that would be brilliant and would be able to fund projects uh, for years to come. And yeah, funding's one of those things that really difficult to do as we're working out. So I think it'd be a, a really great thing 
I mean, money is always the the big hurdle of stuff because as soon as you have more money, you can do more things. So um, that's the part that always that got me interested when I spoke to G about Anactus is is how does the funding work because you you need money to to do anything in essence. It's uh, t- time isn't free. Everyone everyone has a value on their time. And if if you want to do something, people do it for free for only so long. So eventually you're going to have to figure out a way. And that's where, sadly, all the business people have to come in and ruin all the fun of uh, of us who just build and design stuff that that is helpful. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you're doing uh, product uh, industrial design, should I say. But it would, would you call that just a, a branch of product design then? Uh, would that be fair to say so i mean why product design it seems like an interesting one because you you could have done uh in essence engineering if you wanted to you could have uh you could have done architecture similarly why product design specifically yeah um well just out of kind of interest there i did look at engineering first um and uh, I won't lie to you. I went to, I think, where was it? I think it was Sheffield Hallam University's open day. And I was like, okay, mom, I want to go to the engineering section and I want to go to the design place. And I went to the engineering section. I thought, oh, this is really cool. And uh, I was quite interested in the materials engineering that they were doing just by the fact that this guy went, look, this is iron. Look, this is some of the crazy metal. We combine them together and we create this really light metal that we can put on aircraft. And I thought, whoa, that's cool. I want to be able to experiment with that. Um, But then as I started to delve into it further, I started to realize um, that there's quite a lot of maths involved. And as someone that has quite a hatred for maths, I'm not good at maths. I don't like it at all. Um, I just started to realize, right, this isn't the way that I want to go. Um, And yeah, literally, I went so I went from the engineering department and uh, and kind of was all a bit like, "Mm, I'm not sure about this anymore. Um, and I tell you one thing that pushed me over the edge with that was where the automotive engineer uh, came and spoke to us. And it was hilarious because he showed us this cool car model in like a wind tunnel um, and showing like the airflow going of the car. And I thought, wow, that's sick. I want to do that. And he said, but the way we work it out is we use this formula. And as soon as he said that and showed that, I was like, gone. I was like, no, I, I really don't understand this. And that's like, it's not the way my brain works. Um, and so, yeah, went to the design place at Sheffield Hallam and fully was like, whoa, this is interesting. I can have the opportunity to kind of sit here and make whatever I want. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It, it just hit me more on a creative aspect. Uh, and that's where I started to get that little bit of um, further interest. But uh, yeah, the, the ultimate thing that kind of drew me to product design uh, originally was going through the whole um, like process within GCSE and doing GCSE uh, design and technology. And I really enjoyed that. And then from that, it was back in 2018, 2017, there was some show uh, running on the BBC or Channel 4, I believe it was. Um, and it was all about of where they brought these designers, engineers, uh, scientists together to solve um, people's uh, problems within their life at the moment uh, with products and this episode to this day I can still play it in my head of where they went to this graphic designer 
this lady who does graphic design and she was only in her young 20s and she had Parkinson's disease and because of Parkinson's disease she was unable to do her job and be able to write and be able to draw like she used to be able to and so the team were tasked with they need to make a product to essentially change that and uh, it was just brilliant to see how they went through all the different user testing went through doing all the different prototypes and eventually they turned up with this watch that she put on and within this watch it had different motors that reacted to the kind of spasms that were happening within her wrist and the moment that she ju they just kind of go we don't know if this works have a go and she picks up the paper uh, the pen and starts writing her name on the paper like I know it sounds like a movie plot, but that was that moment where I went, I want to do that. And I want to be that person that once I've launched a product and I see someone using it, that I can actually see how my design has changed someone's life like that. I so badly want to get that. And that's something that I want to get with PrepMate. Um, and yeah, it's starting to work. And and very much that was kind of the, the beginning of my um, interest in product design. I mean... Uh... It's, it's, it's interesting you say when uh, when you were in the, the open day that as soon as they mention a formula that you lost interest because I'm, I'm a little bit of the opposite where I've had experience doing some some CAD and mm. some some design and I've never found something more frustrating in my life than trying yeah. to trying to come up with an idea that's in my head that I can very clearly imagine and I can't put it onto the the page like or the screen i can't i can't draw it and take it out i'm that's just the part and now as i've gone through my course I, i've been looking at it i'm like what am i interested in and i'm just finding that more and more i'm interested in in like um the research and development so the laboratory testing the the scientific aspect of of engineering and being a part of the of a team or, or a discovery just working on different different projects different smaller projects trying to find find ways to to manipulate stuff to find new things i don't i like design but i don't really care about it that much I, i'm not that interested in in i want to design this because it's not it's not me i'm not that creative I, i'd consider myself creative to an extent where i can come up with new ideas i have these ideas but I'm very much the one who would be like, I just want to offload this to someone. Someone else can can get my idea and then come up with it, and then I can nitpick it, and then we can fix it. I don't I don't like being the one who's who's there just uh, doing the design uh, day in and day out. But then again, I contradict myself because I'd love to work at Lego and be a designer there. So it's a bit <laughs> it's a bit contradictory, but. I think that's just more of a, a childhood dream that I'd like to, to live out rather than an actual career, viable career aspiration that I'd be happy to do. Um, so, I mean, I know, and you might have heard maybe from other episodes, I know what where I want to be working in the future. Obviously, if this takes off, this is full-time job. This is probably the most fun thing I do in the week. But, I mean, you say you want to be an entrepreneur, but let's say... Uh, it doesn't take off. Is there anywhere that you want to work that you're like, actually they're making an impact. I'd love to be part of that team. Yeah, yeah, fully. So yeah, kind of how I mix the, my design side of things with the entrepreneurship. Um, that that's where I start to understand like the kind of products that I want to then turn into a business or selling those products within a business. 
um, or even kind of setting up my own design consultancy or something like that. And I think, yeah, it kind of goes both ways of the, if the design started to fail, then I would start to go towards the entrepreneurship side and maybe more of a project uh, based business of uh, social entrepreneurship. And, and kind of pursue that way. If that wasn't to work, then something else that I love to do is public speaking. And I think that is something that if I really wanted to pursue that, I could fully try and make that my daily job and make that something of where I could be speaking to people uh, even across the world, because I know it's something of where that I love presenting, I love connecting with people and I love the adrenaline that you get from being on stage and, and speaking to people. and there's always that moment of afterwards as well, where I think anyone who performs gets this of where if people are on their feet and clapping, you get that kind of rush and that buzz. And also when people tell you afterwards of how it's impacted them just from you doing that talk or performance, that's always something that's quite a big thing as well that kind of hits home of like, yes, what you're doing is actually impacting people and you're not just stood up there um, talking garbage. And so, yeah public speaking is definitely something I, I would think about. And and a kind of toil that I went through at school um, was trying to decide as I was heading towards university, am I gonna go down the design route or am I gonna go down the acting route? Um, because I really enjoy acting. Uh, I've done lots of monologue work over the years and I've done uh, literally every school production that I could do under the sun. And, and I've just always loved the feeling of being on stage, loved the feeling of trying different characters. Um, and I always find it interesting because I, I see myself as quite a nice person, but I always get cast as like the evil people. Um, <laughs> and I think it's because I'm, uh, I'm good at getting out of my skin and being someone else and being a different character. But uh, yeah, that's something that sometimes I miss a little bit. And I think that public speaking kind of hits a middle ground there. Um, of where it helps me to kind of get in between design but also um, performing and so yeah definitely if, if I wasn't able to do design wasn't able to do entrepreneurship I would 100% pursue kind of a performing career in public speaking or acting or singing even um, within musical theatre something like that. I mean it's, it's interesting hearing a very opposite side to me but someone who in in primary school plays, I'd like to be the person who's either doing lights or I'd have one line. Uh, I, yeah. I very I very much dislike being on stage and talking in front of a lot of new people. I can do it with my mates and stuff. It's it's just when there's a lot of different people that I don't know, mm. I, I shit myself. So it's it's interesting hearing someone as to why. You would want to be an actor because I appreciate acting. I, I appreciate film a lot. I, I'd, I'd like to say more than other people, but I don't. I, I don't think that would be fair to say. But it it's something that I think is extremely impressive, and I have a lot of respect for people who do it well. But why uh, why musical theatre or why why uh, that physical performance? Because it seems like you're preferring being on stage in front of a live crowd rather than a uh, camera set and studio. I mean, why that side and not uh, on camera? Because it seems like the one the way to go is on camera because that's where the money's at, really. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally get what you mean. And uh, it's quite funny. Over the years at school, 
um, going through my drama lessons. We did a couple of drama lessons that were focused upon uh, if you were in the film industry. And so what you did was, as I remember, because it was quite a while back, was to suggest where the cameras were, they stuck um, post-it notes up on the wall. And so it meant that if you looked directly in that direction, you were out, like you, you can't do the rest of the performance because you just stared straight into the camera, um, which you're not meant to do. Uh, well, for most scenes, you're not meant to look at the camera. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I worked out quite quickly within those scenarios that I hated that idea. I love the idea of being on a stage of where uh, either it's kind of like 360, like in the round and that everyone can see me, or even if it is kind of a bit more traditional and flat on. Um, I love that kind of, it, it's a mixture of that there's a connection um, with that audience. And it's quite ironic that I say that because a lot of the time when you're performing, because of the lights, you can't see people. Uh, you can usually only see like the front row of people and then everyone else is in the darkness. Um, which in some cases can remove the nervousness because you feel as though you're just performing into the dark. But there's something in that room uh, or on that stage of when you're performing that it's entirely different to a rehearsal. And I feel that it's entirely different to when you're in a studio because when in the studio, it's too much of that you're alone and isolated and it's just you. Whilst when it's you are in on a stage, there's just something different about the vibe of it. And it's kind of like, it feels electric in a way, even in the moments of silence and the moments of uproar and everyone kind of um, having like a standing ovation or whatever, whatever the moment is, I feel like I have total control of the audience and that, well, that I'm kind of delving into this character that I'm playing. And yeah, it's just really exciting, really enjoy it. And, and as I was kind of mentioning, the other side of it is, I love the fact that I'm able to delve into a character and I don't know why it is, but in my head, the studio feels as though I would be really fake um, about it. Whilst on stage, I don't know why there's something about being on stage for me that makes me feel as though I'm not performing on stage. I am that character. I am in that location. I am in that scene. And so it just kind of helps me to get more into it. And, and yet there's something that, actors and actresses talk about which is kind of this zone of focus um and there is um there's this famous like uh, acting practitioner called stanislavski um and it always he spoke about how that it's kind of using the inner emotions and your experiences within life to project real emotions to the audience and to create a realistic performance and i love the fact that I'm able to do that through both the moments of where I've been ridiculously happy in my life, the points of when you've been really sad or when you've been really angry um, and kind of use that and manipulate it into a character. And, uh, and as I kind of said, sometimes I get cast as the evil guy, but sometimes it's quite interesting to explore that because that's just not me at all. Um, and yeah, and some of the craziest characters that I've done, which have been the most enjoyable, oddly are ones that are very kind of psychopathic or have done something crazy, uh, or it's really dark because yeah, it's just something that feels out of the world and, and more real in a way. It, it's hard to explain. <laughs> Is there anything like um, any genre, uh, I'll go with genre, that sounds like a good word, of, yeah. uh, of production that you prefer, but because as much as I've hated um, acting in school and things, it might, I've always thought that maybe it wasn't 
uh, the way I've been taught, or maybe it's the scenario. So I never, I never put it out of the question because I'm doing things now that I never thought I would. So I can't rule anything out. But I've looked at doing stand-up comedy and and trying it and giving it a go at least because it's something that I love watching. I love listening to. Uh, as soon as there's a new uh, stand-up of someone that I follow, I have to watch it day of. Um, it, it's interesting to me that they're what they do because it's it's kind of acting, but you're not, and that's that's the part that I liked about stand-up. You're you're in essence telling telling stories just to to more people, and doing doing something like that is is where. I kind of want to give it a go, see what it's like. May maybe I like it, maybe I don't. Maybe it works. You never know. Might as well, might as well give it a go. So I mean, is is there any like genre per se that you're you're looking at? Um, yeah, I I would say I have looked into comedy and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, in all honesty, I'm that guy that when you're in the group of friends or whatever, and I'm trying to be funny and sometimes people will laugh and then sometimes it'll just be dead silence. And, and so, yeah, I've worked out very quickly. Comedy is not my way. Um, and like I've been in productions where it is meant to be comical and usually in that sense it pulls off. But when I'm trying to be the comedian or whatever, usually doesn't work out. And that's why fully I love watching comedy and anyone who does comedy, massive respect to them because it's something that I feel like it's kind of you've either got it or you haven't with your storytelling. And so, yeah, it's a major thing um, that you have to be able to get right. But in terms of genre uh, that I like, I feel like it is my drama teacher's fault. Um, but I am starting to like kind of dark stuff um, and very much kind of your thrillers uh, or or when in terms of me acting in them, I'm meaning. Um, and, and also kind of anything that is explorative of something that's very real world um but yeah for me it goes both ways so there are moments of where i love that idea of acting within something of where there's been some psychopathic killer on the loose and he's killed all these different people and done all these horrendous things and kind of exploring that character but i also love the ridiculously over the top ones like um it can be something as simple as like within christmas carol for instance um which is a play that loads of schools do across the uk and there's so many characters within there, um, like Mrs. Uh, I can't remember, but she hosts like the party within the Christmas Carol. And I just remember so many times seeing different productions of where you can just go over the top with it and go absolutely nuts. Um, and I love that opportunity uh, to be able to do that. And so, yeah, my genres kind of mix very kind of opposite in a way. I like those darker thriller stuff, but I also um, like acting within those kind of comedic things. Um, but I also love watching comedy films. Like if I can find a good comedy film on Netflix or something like that, that sets me out um, for the evening or whatever, because I there's something about comedy films that just, yeah, I think it kind of makes me feel better, makes me laugh and makes me feel calmer um, and oddly has kind of a well-being, uh, a positive well-being effect in a way. And, uh, and yeah, I love those sort of things, but um yeah, probably easiest way to explain it to you is that with the drama productions I've done at school, uh, when I was within sixth form, I did 
one production which was one flew over the cuckoo's nest which is where it's all about these people who are within a mental asylum and the character i played was this italian guy who hallucinates all the time and i absolutely loved it his name was martini and the best thing about that whole project was the drama teacher told us when you're within the round which we were in um you're allowed to do anything and so what happened was my parents sat next to me and uh, and this person sat on my left um, had like a glass of wine and all the characters were allowed to sit within the audience. And so I just came as long as my character and I was kind of in that zone of like, I am Martini, I'm doing all these different mannerisms and things and sat down and kind of saw my parents a bit like, okay, yeah, my parents are here. And I saw an opportunity because the guy there has got a wine glass. So I fully in character, grab the wine glass and start to go to drink it and then start joking with the guy and give it back. But the opportunity to do something crazy like that and ridiculously over the top. I absolutely loved it. Um, and then to the opposite side, uh, I did Jekyll and Hyde in sixth form, um, which was kind of, yeah, as Jekyll and Hyde is, it's very much, it's a polarizing story in that I have to be able to play two characters of kind of the normal doctor, uh, Henry, and then also this very evil kind of monster-like character. And being able to do that and uh, singing the songs within it, uh, within the musical was just so much fun and, uh, and something that I really enjoyed. So mm. yeah. I'm very opposite with my genres. <laughs> yeah. Um, what What is your? I mean, you're you're very well spoken. I mean, um, where where whereabouts did you uh, grow up? Because um, it's it's interesting to hear from people because I've I've obviously not grown up in the UK, so a lot of the times I'm always looking at comparisons and what school was like here and and how people have grown up. So what's uh what's your household like? Uh, when you were growing up yeah so um i grew up well growing up even still now <laughs> um within uh the peak district derbyshire so very much kind of midlands the north um because as i found out going to university anyone who is uh south of nottingham sees that i'm the north even though everyone who is north of me is like no you're not um but that's always a funny debate and uh and yeah within my household it's kind of been um yeah, it's, it's always been interesting as I've grown up. I've been very much used to that. Um, my parents both work very hard um, and they always seem to have some relation to the NHS. Never been directly as like a doctor or something like that, but they've always had some relation to the NHS. And and yeah, it's always been a bit of a mix. Um, I've always been used to uh, that my mum has kind of been the breadwinner um, and has been the person to kind of uh, go out there and and get the money that the family needs to be able to uh, live a decent life and uh, and so that's always something that I don't know why I think about um, is interesting because it always used to be the old notion of that uh, the father of the household is meant to be the person that's going to go and get all the money and that it's the the wife that stays home and whatnot and so I kind of like the fact that it's my mom that's gone and uh, got everything but even equally to that, if you let my dad do any kind of general knowledge quiz he seems to know every single answer like uh, there's a TV show like uh, called University Challenge. And whenever that comes up, he knows the answer because he's read those books. He's read the, uh, those kind of textbooks and stuff. And so he knows his stuff. And uh, and yeah, my brother's brilliant. My brother is someone that is very uh, kind of uh, over the top all the time. And, uh, and so, yeah, it can get annoying. And of course, as the older brother, I will always find my little brother a little bit annoying, but he's brilliant. And, uh, and yeah, kind of growing up, um 
it's interesting because I live very much out in the countryside, uh, but I went to school um, in Sheffield, which uh, anyone who can kind of work out the distances, it's something like 30 miles. So it was always kind of like an hour, 45 minute drive to school, um, which anyone who lived near school was like, why? Um, but my parents did it because I kind of needed it. Um, I've always someone I've always been someone that has uh, kind of had difficulties from a young age so I was born uh, 11 weeks premature um, I've had dyspraxia still have dyspraxia uh, which kind of affects the uh, strength within my wrists um, and kind of motor control but also my thought processes uh, and kind of like how I process things um, especially within exams and high pressure situations, it's not great. I have to read the, uh, the exam question about 10 times before I fully get it um, and stuff like that. And yeah, it, it's interesting because also going to private school, that's usually a topic that people find quite interesting um, because most people I've met at university didn't go to private school. Mm. And I think um, private school was interesting for me because the majority of the time I really enjoyed it. There were moments where I was bullied and moments where um, I didn't always enjoy school, but overall, I really enjoyed it. And it was a great opportunity uh, for me to explore and to um, kind of do all these crazy different things. And uh, and yeah, I never thought about it from the side of the fact that we were having to pay money for it and that, and that the private school was the reason why possibly I was maybe getting a better education than some other people. Um, but as I found out very quickly at university, it doesn't seem to matter like um, what school you came from, which I didn't realize when I was in private school. And that was kind of a silly prejudgment that I had. And, uh, and yeah, it, it, yeah, I, d I don't know what, what else um, would you like me to talk about? In terms of no, uh, I, it's, it's interesting. Um, one of my really good friends that I've met at university, Theo, who's on here, he went, he went to private school and, and he was the first person I, I met and I actually genuinely spoke to and was open about going to private school and talking about what it was, what, what it was like, especially because, because he's someone uh, who's a black male who went to private school, which is not your traditional, uh, what would you say, stereotype of a, of a private school student. Um, yeah. and it, and it's interesting because I, I'm, I am dyslexic as well, but I only found out when I came to university, I had, uh, right. yeah. So I, I had ideas. I had, I had things in my life that kind of made sense, but I never brought it up. I didn't think it was a big deal. I never felt like it was that big of a deal until I really came to university and I saw a poster and I was like, oh, you can get tested for free here just go to the office and they'll organize it for you and you can get checked to see if you have it so i kind of i went out of curiosity because i thought uh, i i thought in my mind i was like i mentioned it to people who were dyslexic and they were like no 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 you're not dyslexic you would know and i and i always thought maybe they're right they probably know better than me i don't know what it actually feels like maybe uh that i'm just normal i'm just making something up and i went there and i found out i was like okay i'm not i'm not severely dyslexic i, I can't like pretend that i'm extremely uh disabled per se but when it comes to my reading speed and especially things to do with words that's where i'm a lot slower than than many other people and most people don't realize how slow i am when it comes to, to reading and, and comprehension uh, of language in general so so it's interesting. I mean, you say you were, you were bullied. Uh, I mean, I I'm a, am I right in assuming that it was because of your dyspraxia and that you were maybe uh, uh, not 
the same as other kids or was it something totally different that I'm I'm just off? Yeah, no, 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 you're kind of hitting the nail on the head in a way. But um, one thing, of course, that people can't tell from a podcast uh, is that I am kind of ginger, not as much anymore. Um, I've kind of darkened, my hair has darkened over time now. But when I was younger, um, I was bright, bright ginger. And so that was always kind of first thing first, someone sees me, he's a ginger. Uh, there's something that's going to come from it. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of expected that and over the years got used to it. Um, there was kind of a couple of times where it started to grind me down a bit. Um, but yeah, it always eventually kind of got resolved. And then, yeah, in, other, in terms of other things that I was kind of bullied for, it is I, I, the way I looked at it. And I, I did a video on my uh, public speaking YouTube channel about this of kind of authenticity. And I feel as though that I've always been someone that has been um, ridiculously uh, authentic um, ever since I was younger. And I will always stick to who I am. I won't try and be like other people. And by doing that, you then come across as the weird kid or you come across as the person that stands out too much. And so you kind of need to be put down the pecking order. Um, and something that I realized very quickly was that um, no matter who I am or who, how I act, whatever groups you're involved within, uh, within the school can kind of affect that. So for example, when I was in prep school, uh, I got into rugby and when you're at private school, it's kind of, you've got your three main sports, you've got the rugby, football um, and cricket. And so if you're in one of those three teams, you all of a sudden get seen as someone that is a bit more popular. And so in prep school, I got into rugby and realized I was pretty decent at it at the time. And uh, I went for it. And once I was in the team, all of a sudden the bullying starts to stop and you kind of I kind of realized ah so now I'm in the group of where there may have been a few people that have teased me or whatever um over the years it has all of a sudden stopped so as soon as I stopped doing rugby in senior school it then kind of went straight back to um where I was at square one and so yeah I've always put it down to that it's very much something that is because I am just me and so at the end of the day if people find it uh, weird, for instance, that I sing um, or weird just by the way that I act um, or the things that I like or whatever it is, then I, at the end of the day, I'm always going to stick to me. I'm never going to stop my singing. I'm never going to, well, unless I dye my hair, I'm never going to stop being ginger. Um, but I'm just always going to kind of stick to me and let me go in the way that I do. And yeah, I found that university has been uh, a great place where I feel because there are so many people from different backgrounds and uh, different walks of life that that's a great opportunity to feel more accepted for who I am instead of it being too much of prejudgment. Um, and so, yeah, I've started to find that university has been a great way of where I won't get bullied as much because uh, I feel more accepted and especially uh, when like with societies and things like that where you have people that you kind of go oh you like doing this as well I'll sick I like doing this then everyone concentrates on that instead of the person uh, too much and so yeah that's kind of where bullying kind of came in though where, when I was younger mm. yeah I mean I've definitely uh, also been a, a victim to it. it not necessarily for those those reasons maybe more a, a couple times because in, in when I was a lot younger, when I was pretty good at school, I was usually one of the top people in the class. So then you get bullied for being uh, academically better, which I think 
when you realize, look at it, look back at it later on, you realize kids are kids, and it's probably a bit of jealousy there, and there's there's things that you don't quite understand, especially when you're smaller and younger. And I think that a lot of people, when they grow older, they they go away from that. It's not you rarely see someone getting getting bullied because they're ginger at like twenty five. Maybe, yeah. maybe with your mates, that they'll, they'll pick at you, but I I. I wouldn't call that bullying. I call that like friendly banter. Like there's, there's an acceptable amount. And I think it's more of an education issue and maybe a diversity issue. Because when I came to the UK, I had these, these ideas from when I lived in Ireland, uh, what school was going to be like and, and how I'd be perceived. And I just, when I left there, I just about had a couple friends that I, I could, and then I moved here. So in my mind, it was like, I'm starting again. No one's going to like me. It'll take me seven years to make a friend now again, because in in similar way, I, I was who I was and I'm not and I didn't want to change it. Maybe at times I did because I, at some point you get sick of it. You just want to fit in. Um, but in the end, I've, I've sort of stuck to who I am and it's worked out because people now I, I, I feel like I, there's a lot of people that love or hate me. And I don't really I don't really care if you don't dislike me. Uh, I've I've been like that probably since secondary school. Where if you don't like me, that's fine. I, you don't have to, but I appreciate those people that actually like me for me, and not because I'm something or I have something or you know if if I'm the just the kid with with the expensive clothes and people just uh, take me for that and don't actually listen to to me. And I think universities where it's that big melting pot of where everyone kind of gets a fresh start where there's everyone's the same age we're old enough to realize actually it doesn't really matter where you're from or it's just more like what you do so you kind of get that start again it's like you're starting up school again where you get to meet all these new people and you don't really care about who they are what they are you're just like oh you like music oh sick i like music there's a music society let's let's go do that like you meet those kind of people and i think universities where I've met some of the best people that I've probably uh, ever had in my life and it's and it's brilliant. Uh, I love it just for that but uh, I've said many times that I'm not an advocate for everyone to go to it because the financial viability and, and things after that isn't the best route anymore. So it's quite interesting. You said that when you were in uh, in private school you had this this preconception that um that because someone went from a non-private school you found that you might have thought that they had a worse self-education i mean is that something that they kind of uh kind of inject into you like trying to trying to uh bring you up as if you're you know you're you're more of an elitist view you went to your private school yeah, literally with private school, there's so many things um, that you can talk about in terms of uh, kind of preconceptions that have um, hit me. But yeah, very much so. I think as I was in senior school, um, that is where there is a lot more people that um, start to come over from other state schools uh, that, um, from the school where I went in Sheffield. And so that is where I started to only just start to realise of that, ah, there are some people that come from state schools who are a lot more clever than me and know a lot more and, for instance, are better at those um, subjects that I thought I was so good at. Um, 
and so yeah I, there was always kind of this preconception that I thought of when I was younger um and I think it was kind of brought on by the school a little bit but it may have also been just due to my uh, poor lack of judgment at the time of that I always thought because I'm at private school and I'm paying for this well my parents are paying for it that I will get the better education um rather than someone that is at a state school um but yeah I very quickly started to realize that secondary school and especially going through sixth form and going into uh university that there are so many people at state school who I think in a way kind of deserve to be um at private school for for some circumstances just because they're so clever um and one thing that I've always found quite ironic is how for example within our year um uh, so maths is always kind of a subject I think about a lot because I don't like it that much but the person who was um, the best at maths within our year and he was in like the top 100 in the UK came from a state school and and so that kind of that hit home to me is like ah I see that yeah if you're from a state school you can still be a lot more clever than me and you can still be uh, a lot better than what I originally perceived but something that I have worked out uh, between private school and state school and I think this comes down to very much school specific in both cases and also teacher specific in both cases but I found with the private school that I went to compared to the state schools in the surrounding area the teachers were in honesty more passionate and they were more devoted to you as an individual and helping you than the stories that I heard from people who came from state schools. And so I think that is where maybe I had kind of that upper hand, but something that massively helped me that I think I wouldn't have got in state school uh, within private school is kind of the learning support side of it. So back in prep school, um, kind of like your junior school, uh, I was very much set up that they were very worried from early on about uh, how I was going to perform within English and maths and, and science and kind of subjects like that. But thanks to their support and their amazing team that they had within the learning support uh, group, they were able to help me to be able to get to a point of where I could happily sit at GCSE and know that I'm going to pass these exams and get to the point of A-levels. And it's kind of like, oh, you're predicted to get A's and B's. And for someone like me at the time that where I always saw myself as more of the dumber kid at the time, um, that I always thought that would never happen. And I genuinely thought when I was younger that I am always going to be that kid who is stupid and doesn't uh, and won't be able to do well in these subjects. But thanks to their support and kind of the, the great education that I got, that helped me to get to where I am now. Um, and yeah, Loughborough University at the end of the day, it's a top five university and, and the design school that I go to is uh, rated as one of the best in the UK. So. For, for me to get to that position, there's surely something within that period of my education that has affected that. And I think that is partially down to um, the school that I went to and partially down to the fact that it was a private school. Um, and I think that is, unfortunately, in some cases, kind of the bias that happens of that if you're paying money, then you, in some cases, not in all cases, will get a better education. But that's kind of what I started to work out over time. Mm. Yeah, you seem to have a very positive outlook on on your secondary and primary school experience, whereas someone like me who who went to a non uh, what's the technical jargon they use a non selective state school, basically your poor people's schools, where you just go, everyone goes, no one cared. I didn't feel like anyone cared about me. I was a number 
to them. I no one really uh, wanted to be there. You had such a mix of people. Some really, really didn't care and didn't turn up or did whatever they wanted. Whereas some people really cared and really tried. And that kind of weird balance in school where I was somewhere in the middle, where didn't know if I cared or didn't know if I wanted to care or school just felt like a chore i remember school as as n the best parts of school is just the the, the shithousery that we did and what yeah. we did for fun rather than all the things we actually were supposed to do as like school work none of that i don't even remember most of that it was just uh random work that i had to do and uh, i think that's where private school comes in because of the class sizes and i know I don't know about yours, but Theo's, I remember he said his entire, uh, I think his entire school had a hundred and something students, whereas we had, uh, I want to say like nearly 200 per year. And there was, uh, was it seven to 11, that's at least four and then two years, of six, six years of school, there was a thousand plus kids in the school. So it was a bit different where teachers couldn't really care about every student. Um, it would be a bit difficult to care about like 400 students that you have in the same sense and that's where my education especially in a levels half of my time at a level i had no teacher for a lesson so it was just lesson cancelled no teacher just here's some sheets do do whatever and that's and that's i i won't fully blame it but I, that's a large part as to why my a levels were so poor uh, in school and why my grades reflected that uh, at the same time, I couldn't really have a work ethic when there was no one to work for, no one to, to take account for my work. So it was a bit difficult when um, when looking back at, especially now when jobs are asking for A-levels and things, it's a little bit embarrassing putting down the grades that I got, which were CCD um, in more difficult subjects being maths, physics and IT. It's, it's not the same. And now when I came to university, I found what I like and and my academic grades are a much better reflection of what I can do, even though I'd like to, I always think I can do better. And I know in my heart, I could, probably could do a little bit better, but achieve, finishing with a, with a first easily in first year re, does show and represent more of what I could do. Whereas with A-levels and looking back on my school, it was, it was pretty awful what I had first day of physics a level the teacher wasn't there and he wasn't there for another two months so we didn't even start until two months later and then he was on and off different teachers come in we had a teacher who came in and told us that he's only doing this for the money and he's just using this to fund his other project because they're so desperate to have someone teach us anything that they'll take anyone um so the the kind of schooling that you got is something that i would want like I wish I had, I wish I could could have had that. But again, my my family couldn't afford private school. It wasn't even a thought. Barely got into that school to begin with. So it, you kind of get what you pay for. But then again, I don't think I'd ever send my kids to private school because of the the things that you learn in private school are very different from the things that you learn in uh, in public school. The way you uh, see people, the way you treat people. It was very different from when I, when I speak to people because everyone's so different. Everyone's so mixed. You can't really have these judgments, these preconceptions, because there's uh, in our school there was over 150 first languages. It was it wasn't possible to be 
like uh, judgmental towards a group because there wasn't one like group groups were small like there were so many of them you could fit into to anything so it's it's great that you had that kind of school but it's a bit uh crazy to me that they still kids still find a way to 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 bully someone just because they're a little bit different so yeah yeah i mean what's uh I asked you for some stuff before we started because obviously I needed uh, a basis to uh, to to think of stuff. Seeing as you aren't a famous actor or designer yet, I can't interview you on on what you've done as of now. But that will come next time. Um, you talk about ultra marathons. I mean, I'm someone who wants to do a marathon, normal one. Why ultra? Like, why 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 are you going from from a from 23.5 i want to say 3.5 miles to over that why um it's literally from uh it's kind of from two perspectives so there's one side of it of where um i absolutely i've i've started to really enjoy running and running was only something that i started on and off in kind of 2016 and properly started to get more into of like at least one run a month uh, at least um, within like kind of 2018 and then going through 2019 and 2020 has become a lot more regular thing um, and and so a part of it is that I've started to love running and I also I want to be able to see how far I can push myself um, and that is something that uh, has become a massive thing uh, for me ever since um, I went through having cancer so but back in the summer of 2019 um, I had testicular cancer and went through uh, surgery with that and went through a round of chemotherapy with that. Um, and I won't lie, it, it, I know everyone who's been through experiences like that says this, but it was a life-changing experience. And it was something that um, entirely changed my mindset, um, really detrimentally at the time affected my mental health. And so with kind of ultramarathon running, I feel like it's a way of that I'm able to, for one, um, unlock this area where I can push myself further um, mentally than uh, what people normally do. And oddly in a way, because I've always tried to think about how is a good way of describing to people what that kind of um, pain is uh, that when you are going through um a really bad patch of your mental health and luckily for me it's only really happened in that instance um but yeah the kind of depression spiral that i was in and very much close to uh, wanting to end my life and kind of the suicidal thoughts that you go through and everything of that the, the way i was just trying to think about how is this something that i know for one i can benefit my mental health but also kind of um push myself um to that point and further again but but as in like mentally push myself to a crazy point um and it is just literally through ultramarathon running and and i know this sounds crazy but i'm very much someone that does like a bit of running but my goals at the moment is very much that this year um i want to run a marathon be it whether it's just i go outside and run uh, the distance or whether it's an actual proper event just because covid and everything we don't know what will happen with that um and I want to be able to run an ultra marathon this year. And then next year, looking into kind of 2022, 
I want to do something crazy. Like I want to either run the length of the Pennines or run the length of all of Wainwright's um, trails in the Lake District, or even something like running the length of Britain. And I've, I've told some of my mates that, and I'm very much kind of in my head, I know I want to do that. By the end of 2022, I want to be able to sit down and say, I've ran the length of Britain. And I have kind of gone through that mental battle that you can go through within um, long distance running. And I just want to be able to do it as a way for me to kind of um, push myself and understand that I am a resilient person and I've been through the shit so to speak and so I know that I can get through anything uh, with the kind of mindset that I have and the techniques that I use and I also want it to show to people as a way of that you can yourself as someone who is quite normal I don't see myself as extraordinary I haven't got any kind of superhuman uh, genes in me to become an athlete or anything like that that anyone as long as you um, have that positive mindset and you push yourself um that you can literally go on to achieve anything that you set your mind to and anything that you want to do. And so, yeah, it's kind of the mix of that, of why I'm wanting to go into this ultra marathon, long distance running um, area. Hmm. I mean, I, I hope you don't mind talking about this, but, um, uh, but uh, what was chemotherapy like and how, what, what was getting told that you have testicular cancer like, because I think this is something that, that we all know about we're all fearful of but you've obviously gone through and come out the other side brilliantly hats off to you to what you're doing after it but what what was that like um if you don't mind talking me through it yeah sure um <laughs> it's probably one of the one of the weirder experiences i've been through but i believe in terms of like the stages of grief there is kind of very much the initial stage of denial of where you deny it. And all I remember is very much, I was in a hospital bed at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll go through the story quickly because it is a bit of a mad story. Um, but essentially I was on a date with my girlfriend at the time and uh, it went along the lines of something like this, that we went to the park, uh, we were lying in this kind of round um, swinging chair thing and uh, and got out of that i then hopped over the gate to get out of the park uh, like playground area and just walked down the main path and all of a sudden just got a massive shooting pain around kind of um, my left testicle and uh, around my left kidney and i was like oh this is not good um but the thing was it came it became quite a comical moment at the time because my girlfriend thought it was something else that was happening down there I was like no it's not that um <laughs> and uh, and so it was very much I then went to the toilet trying to work out what the hell is happening um and eventually got back to where my family were um uh, within the town uh, where they were doing something called well dressing where it's quite literally you put petals on clay to make all these pretty pictures and I got back there and yeah, I was leaning on these uh, kind of boards that they have and I nearly fully just blacked out. The pain was getting so bad. I then told my mom like something bad is happening here. I don't know what's happening. Went to the doctor um, and they then were like, yeah, go straight to A&E with this letter. Um, then went through A&E and uh, had about, yeah, probably something stupid like eight doctors grab me down there essentially to try and work out what the hell is happening um, because they were all confused because 
usually in the case of the pain that I was having, it usually means something, I don't know what the technical terms is, but essentially that your testicles have twisted. Mm -hmm. um, and so that can be quite um, uh, bad because it means that it can cut off the tube that is down there, which um, allows you to uh, send sperm essentially. And so if that happens and it happens for too long and it's kind of a weird strangulation thing that they talk about, then you can become infertile. And so they were quite worried, but then they worked out it wasn't that. And so the kind of picture that I got was from what they were saying was it's either some kind of bacteria that's there um, or something that's causing the pain. And we don't know what it is, but you need to stay overnight. So I stayed overnight in the hospital. Um, had to wear their ugly garment things for pajamas wasn't great and uh, and then woke up the next day went for uh, an ultrasound scan I believe it was um, and came back and yeah literally all I remember is uh, I paid for the Sky Sports thing on the TV because I love cricket and I'm an absolute fanatic of cricket and the World Cup was on at the time so I was there happily watching the game away and then they come round and it was all a bit like a kind of TV show moment of where four of the doctors all collect together they shut the uh, curtain so no one else can kind of invade your space um, and my girlfriend goes and waits outside and my, it's just me and my mom. And yeah, I will never forget the moment of the doctor kind of kneeling next to me and I'm thinking, what the hell's happening here? And he kind of grabs uh, the bed or whatever on my hand, as I remember. And he just said, um, we are 90% sure that you have testicular cancer. Um, but luckily, he didn't stop there uh, because what he said was like, is his words, as I remember, was, so Rob, we think that there's 90% chance that you have testicular cancer. But myself and the doctors have been speaking and there is a 110% chance that you will survive and you will be fine. And so as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, this is a piece of piss, essentially. Um, excuse my language, but it, this this will be all right. It's something I can get through. And uh, and yeah, kind of from there on in, a whole roller coaster ensued of where originally I was fine with it for about a week. Um, and then it started to get closer to the date of when I was having my surgery to remove my left testicle. And uh, yeah, I would say that's when it started to hit home and started to go, oh shit, I'm going through this now, aren't I? And uh, and yeah, from there on in, it was just a crazy roller coaster with my mental health um, and with everything that was questioning within life. But uh, yeah, I won't lie, there were moments of where I was thinking, I could die from this because there's always the po possibility of something goes wrong in the surgery um, or if they haven't caught it in time that the cancer spreads to somewhere else in my body, um, which means it could be uh, worse in another place in my body. And so that could uh, be quite detrimental for me. And so, yeah, there was lots of moments I was scared of kind of death and everything. But yeah. In all honesty, oddly, when they told me straight away, I wasn't that fussed. <laughs> I don't know why, but I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of people say that because it's um, it's the shock factor. You don't really quite comprehend mm. what's, what's going on. Um, I, I'm guessing it was because they caught it early that, that it could just be removed and you're very fortunate to have it like that and uh, and i'm and i'm glad that it is and hopefully you're all in well health for the long term now yeah um but for me it's it's that i feel like in that situation i would probably be the same where i just be like oh it's nothing but other people probably your mom felt it a little bit more it was yeah. a, a a big thing but it's it's good that you're having 
we're having this conversation because it's important that people do get checked they do make sure it is a it is a serious thing and and, and i know a lot of people don't don't do it enough and i'm probably guilty of it enough that you need to get yourself checked out regularly you take your your car to a service once a year you need you should probably do your do it to your own body it's a little bit more important mm. um uh, i think you said you you had chemotherapy or was that uh not a part of it what was that like because me and my mate uh literally yesterday was talking about if if we had cancer and we would you go through chemotherapy or would you not and i said yes he said no we're having a little bit of a debate about that i mean what was that like um yeah um just just to kind of uh, clarify with what you were saying about checking yourself um yeah so the doctor's advice just because i think this is a good place to talk about it um the doctor's advice is very much after you've had a shower for instance it's good to check um yourself uh, every three weeks or every month or so um and literally if you feel as though that there's possibly a lump there or something like that just go straight to your gp um and that's kind of the advice that i was always told uh, afterwards but uh, yeah with, with, with your question towards kind of chemotherapy um, I would say I was quite lucky in terms of that I only had one round um, whilst uh, I got put on the Teenage Cancer Trust uh, ward, which was absolutely brilliant because that's essentially for anyone who is uh, a kid or a teenager or a young adult. Um, and so I think it's as long as you're under the age of 21 or 22 or something like that, you're allowed to go onto that ward. And that was brilliant because uh, if needs be, there was an Xbox, there was a piano, um, and they, they even had like calippos uh, and lollies in the f uh, freezer, which was brilliant for me because I, I, I'm someone that quite, I really like ice cream. Um, and so, yeah, overall, in terms of the experience, um, I would say I felt comfortable. Um, the, the, the kind of everything that was happening was a bit odd because by this moment, I was very used to people injecting me in the arm and, and getting my blood and stuff like that. So they came and put kind of the cannula in and uh, I was kind of all right with that. But I'm someone that now I hate needles forever. Mm -hmm. Absolutely hate it. Any opportunity that I can get out of having to have a needle, I will try. Um, but yeah, they literally just put the cannula in. They got this uh, bag uh, of kind of fluids to initially uh, wash it out and it's a very weird sensation as you can feel it going around your veins and everything and then they get the actual bag with the um, stuff for the chemotherapy and that's very weird because um, the way they have it of course is that they keep it cold um, so that um, it's kept all right for when you need to have your chemotherapy and so when I felt this going around my arm I got to a point of where it got so cold I couldn't feel my left arm um, just because it was just so cold. It was like ice was going around my veins. It was the weirdest feeling ever. Um, but yeah, I think with chemotherapy, going through it at the time, uh, as it's going around your body and everything, it's not that bad. It's all right. Uh, it's more of kind of the after effects from it. Um, and yeah, it's always notable with chemotherapy that people talk about the fact that you're going to be sick or that you're going to lose your hair and stuff like that. Um, and I was quite lucky because it was only one round. My hair just thinned a little bit. That was it. I still kept the majority of it. It was still all hair and ginger-ish. Um, <laughs> and then in terms of other effects, I wasn't sick at all. 
Um, the only uh, major effect that chemotherapy can have with you sometimes is that it affects your immune system, of course, and weakens your immune system, um, which means that if your temperature, for instance, I got given a little card that essentially said if my temperature goes above 37.5, I need to go to the doctor. Um, and that happened uh, one night and I rushed, was rushed to the hospital and everything, but they sorted me out and it was all good. And so, yeah, I think chemotherapy is just one of those things of where if you are going to have to go through it, you just need to get your head around it and understand all the consequences that may happen of it. Um, but from my experience and from seeing the other people who are on the ward, I think sometimes it is uh, kind of portrayed as a lot worse than what it is. Um, and that's just from my own opinion. There are probably some people that maybe they've had like 10, 15 rounds and they go, no, it's horrible. Don't get involved, whatever. But from my experience and from seeing the people who were going through the 10 rounds who even lost their hair, they were still quite happy, I would say, and still very much themselves. And that, yeah, it's just getting through those um, kind of after effects of that you may be sick, you may feel ill, um, you may have problems with your temperature and stuff like that. And it's just getting through that. So yeah, out of all the whole of the process um, of me having my surgery and uh, and the chemotherapy, I would say the surgery uh, was a lot worse than um, the chemotherapy. Mm. I mean, uh, chemotherapy uh, has this like big, like looming cloud over it, and I think a lot of people don't know where it is, but it just seems like it's this big bad thing that you yeah. know you go through chemo and it's awful, and you just wanna. Yeah, you, you want to just die, but the way you're making it sound, it could be just because you went through one round. Maybe if you yeah. did 10, you might have a different opinion on it. Um, I but, think it's... Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think it's it's just more of that it's a frustrating thing to go through. And, the, and yeah, and it's just getting through those uh, effects from it. The actual chemotherapy itself is fine. And even with seeing the other kids on the ward who are having it, they all seem fine and they could play in their Xbox whilst they're having it and everything. It's always very much how you deal with for if you are sick um, and kind of anything else that happens with it. So if anyone who is listening does ever have to go through chemotherapy, it shouldn't be something that you worry about too much because it isn't as bad as I as it's portrayed, um, I would say, in my opinion. Yeah. Mm. That, that's that's good though because um it, it sheds a lot of light on if anyone hopefully does listen to this that that and is going through it obviously I'd, I'd hope that no one has to go through something something like that but that it isn't the the be all and end all and it isn't this great big awful thing um i just want i want to end i want to end this a little bit more positively because i don't want to i don't want it to be such a such a dreary mood leaving this so i want to know what it's 2021 now i want to know do you have any new year's resolution i hate that phrase but any goals for this year that you're setting out yeah so yeah new year's resolutions i'm always a bit funny on them but yeah, very much the physical side of it, sports side of it. I want to go do my marathon. I want to go do my ultra marathon. Um, possibly trying to get in uh, a triathlon in there because um, that's something new that I've started. So I'd love to do that. And yeah, in terms of other things, um, with my public speaking channel with Rob Talks, I want that to start to become a bit more of something that I can do in person and something that can start to grow. Um, it doesn't need to be that within this year that I start to earn money from it, but if that so be it happens, then I think that would be a fantastic way 
of me being able to earn a little bit of income in something that I love to do. And so, yeah, fully being able to see that go somewhere would be excellent. And yeah, another big goal for 2021 is kind of for me to see prep mate go somewhere and seeing that go big because it's one of those things of where it has so much potential and all it needs is someone to realize that potential and realize the amount of impact that it'll have and how successful it can be. And it can go way bigger than anything that we've done before at an actor's Loughborough. And so that excites me. And, uh, and yeah, I think something that's probably a bit more, I don't know, down to earth and more to me personally, I want 2021 to be a year um, kind of similar actually for me uh, in how 2020 was of that it's some it's a year that I have control of my mental health and I have control of my mental well-being and that I make sure that I enjoy the year because I think there have been a few moments in 2020 where I was a bit too focused on right got to get this hard work done got to get this done and not concentrating on myself enough and not concentrating on having fun enough essentially um, and so yeah that's something uh, for me that is massive within 2021. Um, and with that, I want to spread some positivity because, uh, I mean, I don't know about you. I keep looking on my social media and it's forever someone's story talking about everything that's happening in America, someone's story talking about coronavirus. I've kind of had enough with um, focusing too much on those things. And so I think it is something of like, it's 2021. It's a new year, fresh start. You can literally be doing whatever the hell you want, whatever your goals are, go for them. Whatever your dreams are, go for them. And just the, the limit is the stars of uh, realistically. So just try and do whatever the hell you can, despite the circumstances and despite everything. And yeah, just 2021, however you see it, it will be a good year. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I really do appreciate it. It's been wonderful uh, speaking to you. I'll make sure to leave. Um, all the, the the relevant links in the episode description. So if anyone wants to listen, find you on your YouTube, on your Instagram, they they can have a look there. And uh, hopefully I can get you on uh, in the future, see how you're doing, see how uh, Pratmate's doing, uh, yeah. and we can catch up then. Uh, so thank you once again for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much, Vlad. Really enjoyed it. Bro. No problem. Thank you.